he Māori mau mai te rangi ki taku upoko ki te whenua. I'm a Māori from Ranginui, from the tip of my head to this land that I stand on. E ngā mana e ngā reo ki ngā kārangaranga maha o te motu, no piki mai, no kake mai ki te whare nei a te ahikā. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Maraia Rakuraku. Welcome to Te Ahikā, which gives a voice to Māori issues on Radio New Zealand National. We're doing things a little differently. Today is our in-depth look at a subject, how Māori find love. But what is love? Is it instinct? Or chemical, like the clichés? I saw him across the room and everything stopped. Or I knew right then and there that this is was love at first sight. Maybe in the movies, Mariah, but today we're living in the real practical day-to-day world of how Māori have found themselves love in the past and how we find those special people today. What about not knowing who you're going to marry at all and having your people decide for you? as is the tikana of tomo or tomo, an arranged betrothal which leads to an arranged marriage. That was the case for Amelia Sterling, whose life was detailed in Anne Salmon's book, Amelia, the life story of a Māori woman. After eventually agreeing to the tomo, Amelia Sterling's wedding day nerves were somewhat increased by a confusing event. And we had to rush out and get dressed and get the bridesmaids all ready and get out on the road because it's quite a walk from Mrs. Sterling's house to the church. So anyhow, it was till when they started the, the ball rolling so everybody had to panic. And uh, anyhow, we got out on the road, we started walking. So when we got to, uh, halfway up the road to the church, then I, we heard somebody... Uh, um, talking and yeah, and, and up on the top of the hill, somebody was uh, talking as if uh, we were going to a funeral. And uh, she was talking and yelling out in Maori, and Haere Rai Hikae Maori Mai Nikwe, Ete Pokokohua Nee, Hakapa Haere Waharawa Kotamati Kaiwe Kuriya. Well, that's a curse. And she's wailing as if uh, we're going to a, a funeral or something. Te Ahikā today is in three parts. In part one, we'll learn what tomo or tomo is. In part two, I'm with Julie Dwyer, no te here, who, after 53 years of marriage with Mike Dwyer, remembers their first date. Yeah, Rowley rang up and he said to me, do you want to go to a go to the pictures, and I said, with you, you've got to be joking. He said, no, no, with my mate, Mike. And I said, oh, Mike Dwyer. And he said, yeah, he'd really like to take you to the movies. And I'm like, jumping around and saying, all right then, okay, which picture theatre? And I think he talked to you on the other end. Yes, indeed, we went to the Roxy and we saw On the Waterfront. Marlon Brando. Brando. <laughs> I'm sure they're not the only couple whose romances were triggered off by going to the pitches. We also meet Anton Blanc, son of Nasi Puro writer Arapeta Carr and Swiss Pios Blanc, who observed firsthand the differences encountering couples who marry outside of their culture. In social behaviour, um, Swiss people are very private. Um, they're very punctual. Um, they're very ordered. Um, so... 
you know, the times I've spent in Switzerland, um, you know, to see my aunties, it's always sort of by appointment. You arrange a time, you go and see them, you have dinner and um, you leave, uh, you know, which is opposite to the way that we behave. Mum yeah. would always mum would always want a house full of people. Dad is completely opposite. He wanted his privacy. And finally, in part three, we talk to Māori Generation X and Y about how they find love today. That's all coming up. No maiki tēnei o nga te ahikā, te aroha pono. How Māori find love on te ahikā, Radio New Zealand, National. So, what is tomo? Tomo. Nazi Pro Amsterdam explains. Tomo is betrothal. In, in, at whatever age, some, in terms of what I understand, Tomo de Benil is that Fano Moi Hitamaiti, right at the beginning there, they were betrothal and then, you know. Uh, so that's one way. To, sometimes they might have been in their you know, teenagers and then they, they betrothed, whether it's within the tribe or anything like that. Depended on the, the the politics of the of the tribes, and um, if there needed some, you know, some cementing to be done between tribes over the hill and in another valley, then the, the two chiefs or the, or the families, the whanau, would, you know, they would get together and they would meet and they would discuss quite seriously how they can retain that, you know, that um, uh, relationship, and that's where you know it's all about relationships. There's no doubt about the whakapapa and that, as you said early on, it's a, um, it's a, it's an ingredient. I mean, he moing arangatira, he moing arangatira is from, you know, the whakapapa. And um, in the oriores there, you know, the oriores, the, the way they, they, they tohi children. Oriores lullabies. Yeah, oriores and lullabies, yeah. No my mean they were there if a child of rank was being born that's where they sung these ori ori and so you know they would they would welcome the child knowing that their child at the same time as it was born would be dedicated to someone else and so you know that's the, that's the real Tomo or, or, or Tomo at the, at, the, at the early ages, the earliest of times. The 1976 publication, A Media, The Life Story of a Māori Woman, a media Manutahi Sterling, as told to Anne Sarmond, saw what was then a young university student, Anne Sarmond, recording the life story of a queer in her 60s. Amelia Sterling, starting with her birth in a small east coast village, Tuparoa, before the beginning of the 20th century, to her childhood in Ruatoria, to married life in Rokokore in the 1920s and 30s, and Auckland from the mid-1940s. You get a sense as you read the book that without even knowing it, Amelia was living through great change. For example... Entering a tomo, tomo, was a well-known accepted practice, and yet... You get a sense of how Amelia wasn't into the tomo marriage her people wanted her to enter into. In the book, Amelia recalls a conversation with her mother, Ani Kahutafiti. Taku kōrero ki Amelia. Do you know what? Your elders want you to have a tomo marriage. What's that, Mum? 
Well, you see, it's not for you to pick the men. It's for them. They pick the man for you. All you have to say is yes, and they'll do everything. It's not your marriage. It's the people's. Well, that says it all really near, Mariah. Yeah, sure does. And word quickly spread in the community of her impending tomo to Iruera Kafia Fakatane Sterling. Despite all of that, Amelia Manutahi Hairewa O'Hara went on to marry Iruera Sterling, and their marriage was testament to the choices made by the iwi. And some may say, as strong had they made their own choice. Their biographer, Anne Sarmand, recalls that time. When we were working together, it was very different from uh, working with Eruera, where it was tribal history, it was tapu, mm. you know, no kai, had to be away from food. Um, we always had a karakia before every session. It wasn't like that with our media. It was, um, you know, it was, uh, although I was a much younger woman, I had a little daughter by then, and she was often sitting on my lap, and we'd be sitting and just really talking, and she would, sh- sharing her life, and, and sometimes very emotional. Sometimes Some of the things she told me were heartbreaking. And um, when she talked about her Tomo marriage, it was quite emotional. Because she, how old was she when she was approached by her people to enter into the Tomo marriage? Well, she must have been about, probably about 19 or 20. Hmm. Something like about that. And um, she had a Pākehā boyfriend, as you know, and... Um, I don't think it was in her mind um, at that stage to get married. She, yes. She felt she was quite young and and still exploring life and having a great time. I mean, it's definitely a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster. how she wants to jump out the window, how she's waiting for her horse, Susie, to bring her horse so she can escape. I mean, all of that is... is um, you know, it's real gold when you, when you, in terms of um, reading it in the book. Well, maybe because by the time we did the book, we knew each other really well. I mean, we'd been close for probably, oh, it must have been getting on for 10 years by then. Um, and and she was a godmother to my to our daughter. And yes. So we were really close. And when she was telling me about her marriage, uh, the Tomo, uh, it was like being there. You know, mm. she was one of those people when she told a story, it was like time travel. You know, <laughs> you were right there with her. And I, I was feeling for her as she was talking. And she was somebody who, when she talked about her life, was completely honest. She didn't try and make herself sound great or dress anything up. She just spoke from the heart and and straight from her experience. Well, I think the thing that really um, tore her was her mother, because her mother stood on the hill outside mm. the church and, and tangied and, you know, cursed the people that had brought her there to marry. And Because her mother had promised her Parker husband, who yes. was Irish, because he'd separated from his he'd, uh, his family, didn't like him mar- marrying a Maori woman, and so they'd kind of thrown him out. And so she had promised him on his deathbed that our media would marry back uh, into his people. And so for her, it was as though she was breaking that promise to her husband, I guess. And um, and but for our media going to the church and hearing her mother wailing, you know, as though she was dying or dead, uh, well, you can imagine. Kia ora, Professor Dame Anne Sarmand. In 1976, Amelia Sterling read from her biography. While we were getting ready, we haven't even gone halfway with the dressing of the, oh, the bridesmaids and that and the bride and that, and the bell started to ring. So then uh, me started to panic. 
it. Huh? The bell is already ringing and we people are not even half ready. Uh, who's, uh, who, whose idea was this to, to have the wedding early? It's not even uh, two o'clock yet. And the, the, the wedding bell was, was ringing. So then he had, she had to send uh, Thai, that's Eriyara's uh, eldest brother, to the church to see uh, which, if, whether it was the minister or who's uh, uh, pulling, uh, ringing the bell. So anyway, uh, Thai went, got on a horse, and he went to the church. And when he got there, there was this lady ringing the bell. And he looked, it was Tewaina. It was Tewaina. Tewaina, uh, Mrs. Tom Shelford. That's Charlie Shelford's mother. Oh, well, Charlie and his sisters. It's quite a family of them. It was Tewaina ringing the bell. And Tai yelled out to her, Oh, what the pouring it on this mad Tewaina. What are you doing that for? It's not time for, for the wedding yet, and you're starting to ring the bell. And Tewana said, because I was the one that looked after that Edward Akafir, not his mother, but I looked after and carried him on my back and everything, even feed him. And, any, and most times when he's done something wrong, I get into trouble, I get all the growling, not him. So I am going to be the one to, to ring the bell for his wedding day because... He is my, my brother. I feel he is more to me than his mother. So I'm going to ring this bell. And we had to rush out and get dressed and get the bridesmaids already and get out on the road because it's quite a walk from Mrs. Sterling's house to the church. So anyhow, it was Tawaina that started the, the ball rolling, so everybody had to panic. And uh, anyhow, we got out on the road. We started walking. So when we got the, uh, halfway up the road to the church, then I, we heard somebody uh, um, talking and yeah, and uh, up on the top of the hill, somebody was uh, talking as if uh, we were going to a funeral. And uh, she was talking and yelling out in Maori, and Hikai hikai Maori mai nekwe. Well, that's a curse. And she's wailing as if uh, we're going to a, a funeral or something. And, uh, of course, when my uncle, who was taking me to the church, heard this noise and he asked, what's all that noise up the hill? And I said to him, don't, don't take any notice, it's only mum. Where? And I pointed to him up on the hill. What's she doing over there? I said, never mind, take no notice. Well, we, we better get going. And he said, no, I want to know what she's talking about. So he stopped me, and we stood in the middle of the road, and he listened. And she started again with the same thing. So then, of course, when Tamaji Kaiwe heard that, well, he got his... <laughs> so away he went up the hill. So then the bride just stood in the middle of the road, nobody to take to the church. So somebody called out to, to a young man on a horse to go and look for Hakapahu Hairawai at the church and asked him to come and take, the, <laughs> take me to the church. 
So this young man went on a horse, found Hakupaharawa and brought him. So by the time Hakupaharawa got to uh, where I am, we've lost the two bride, <laughs> two bridesmaids. So we couldn't find the two flower girls. They'd gone off somewhere behind the quicks or somewhere. So then we started hunting for them, calling out and everything. Somebody just went down the beach and found them in a sort of a, a culvert <laughs> playing uh, stones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> playing stones. So, so when we got to church and uh, everything uh, started with the... Uh, and the minister come to the part about the ring, <laughs> then there was no ring. And he asked him, uh, Edwira, uh, where's the ring? And he started to fumble in his coat and that. There was no ring. And the minister said, no ring? No. What happened? Oh, I left the ring at home. Uh, he said, oh, well, if there's no ring, we'll have to marry you with the key of the church. So within, I thought about the ring I had on my finger and this ring was a band ring that belonged to Edward and I've been wearing this ring. That morning the old lady said to me not to wear anything on my finger, so I never took any notice. When I put my gloves on, I forgot I still had it on. But when we got to church and I took my gloves off, I noticed this ring, so I just dropped it in my glove and hid it. So evidently the minister must have spotted me wrapping this ring up. After a while, after when he spoke about the key of the church, he says, what have you got there? And I showed him the ring. Oh, well, that'll do. Yeah, after the ceremony, then the church service, then uh, everyone can go home and get the ring, and then we can come back in church and bless the ring, and it'll be all right. There were so many people... They couldn't get everybody into the uh, the big house, so they had a big marquee outside so the, where all the tables were set. So then all the wedding and everything, and that's when the people start to talk about the money side. Well, there was piles and piles of notes, I, I don't know how much it is, to uh, finalize that side of the, uh, the togmo. Uh, it must finish up in Atipuro, uh, which we did. After a few days of preparation and that, we went on horseback. Uh, a lot of people went with us. We stayed a night at Tararoa. We cut the cake there and left uh, the uh, part for Tararoa tribe. Then we went on uh, tiki-tiki and so forth. We left a piece of the cake and so on until we got to Tuparoa. When we got to Tuparo, we had word from uh, Materoa Ridi that we have to, to come to go to uh, Whareponga. So uh, we, we did go to Whareponga, and that was the end of that journey. And we cut the cake, and that, that was finished. Then we came home. Amelia Sterling, describing her wedding to Eduera Sterling, Recorded in 1976, you're listening to Te Ahikā, and today we're delving into the kaupapa of how Māori find love. I'm Mariah Rakraku. I'm Justine Murray. For photos featuring some of today's guests, you can head to our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahikā. Amsterdam is regularly called upon to offer up advice on things Māori. He was a history expert in the TV series One Land.
He also accompanied the New Zealand Olympic team to Beijing and is an expert in tikanga Māori, especially in oriori, or Māori lullabies. So when you have this, this, this word or this thing that is love, there are many facets that come off that kupu. So if we were to brainstorm, you'd have love in a circle. You'd have all these arrows around it. And I suppose for you, culture does play a part in terms of oh, finding yeah. love? I think that's the essence of, of my, my understanding of love, aroha. I mean, I love being Māori. I love things Māori. Um, I want to make sure that you know my mokopuna do and my children do. The reason why I didn't do a good job with my children, I was too busy teaching, and I, I wasn't. I shouldn't. Have, I sort of just spoke Maori to them, and they would have been, you know, uh, not too bad off. But they do understand Maori, and so and you know, a couple of them speak Maori. But my mokopuna, they they delight to behold, and I hope that they carry that on into their. You know, into their lives in terms of that they pick um, who their spouses are going to be, uh, and I just have to hope that it's it's um, that it's uh, you know it's, that they stay in the Maori side, the Tikanga Maori. You know, living living conditions in the, in the times now, and amongst other people, the you know the multiple you know multiplicity of different races that they get used to. Uh, the number of people, the differences in, in culture and that. Uh, I still feel that, um, you know, that they, 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 we stick to ourselves. If we really want any, um, to keep our identity, you know, there's, there's others to say that, you know, there's, um, there's enriching an identity I thought we had a rich culture as it was at the beginning. The beginning of since? Yeah, yeah since of when uh, we came along. And uh, the idea of it is, nah, Māori culture is not this and that. It's, you know, it's, it's old, it's got to go. And uh, I think we're all the poor for, for that attitude and um, let them convince us, particularly our parents and that, that... Um, Māori culture was going nowhere, and uh, I'm completely of the opposite. What are your perceptions of how Māori find love in today's society? In today's society, I think there's a lack of control or a lack of values, if you like, that I see that our children, our grandchildren, uh... Uh, you know, compared with what I'm used to, uh, uh, being used to uh, as part of my own upbringing and, and my understanding of what this thing love meant, I don't think there's any discrimination. I think that um, there's a whole plethora of um, um, where is it now? What I'm talking about areas where. There's movies, there's television, there's um, the values that are espoused by TV, particularly mm. television, and you know it's just having a huge effect on in in on the um, brainwaves, the brainwave of our children and our and our, our nephews, and nieces, grandchildren, and so on. So that you wonder if there's no end to what's going to happen to our kids; they'll end up. 
uh, instead of having a tight related um, relationship thing that you can, you know, uh, very much rely on, you have Māori marrying South African now, you have Māori marrying French, you have Māori marrying uh, India, you have Māori marrying, you know, all out of, you know, all out of out of spiral, if you like, spiraling out. And I don't like to use the word control, but um, it's a clash of customs and traditions that's probably more that we should be concerned about rather than um, at least intertribal marriage was probably less was it less less reliable I suppose than than, than uh, the, the the present day would would make it in talking to my grandchildren um, they you know whoever comes along whoever comes along whoever comes along no matter what culture they're from yeah, if does, it's the love. cultural thing doesn't matter yeah it's who they think, how they feel themselves, and so it makes you wonder about our early, um, our early uh, ancestors. Is that it looks as if that they were groomed from the time they were born, rather than it is this today. So we have no, uh, unless unless you want to make it, you know, uh, part of your upbringing of your children. That you keep engraving, ingraining into them, you know, marry a Māori, marry your own. I've no doubt that each, you know, having been brought up in some of the iwi, particularly in the Bay of Plenty and on the East Coast and that, um, you still know that you're different from them. If I talk about my own, for instance, you know, my own love was for when I, when I met my own, one of my own uh um, from home, and um, there's no strong. Uh, you know, we've been together for 45 years now, 46 years, and and it's, it's just as strong as it ever was. I mean, that's all credit to her in terms of my wife Shirley. Uh, we don't have any other influences outside us. You know, we can we can go for ourselves, and we can you know. Except for the interhapu and fan in the stuff, we've got nothing to worry about outside of our our hapu. So it's fair to say, Justine, that Amster thinks marrying inside your own culture is safer. Ida, but as we'll hear, love can get in the way of the best laid plans. Ah, uh, yes. Anton Blanc is a result of a Maori Swiss marriage between his mother, writer Arapeta Khan, and father, photographer Pios Blanc. When you talk about betrothal, I guess. Um, Mum was really breaking away from a couple of traditions. Um, one was of those arranged marriages, but also um, um, she didn't marry Māori, and I think at the time that was really difficult for my uh, grandparents. But um, Dad was a photographer for um, Te Aho in the 50s, and how he met Mum was um, he was photographing a kapahaka group who were performing with Judith Durham, who was... Uh, from what I understand, a well-known dancer visiting the country and mum was in the front row and he saw her and asked her out on a date and um, proposed on the first date. And certainly, um, and also mum, apart from dad being a photographer there, mum also uh, wrote 
and had pieces published by the magazine. So um, that's how she began her literary career, I suppose, as, as writing for Tiaho. I do think Mum had this um, very kind of international, um, looked through the world through an international lens because she travelled so early and was um, married not only to a Pākehā but to um, a foreigner and a European. And that's certainly reflected in her writing. And when your um, father spotted your mum, was it was it love at first sight? Well, I think it must have been from what he he proposed very quickly. So I think he obviously was on a mission. And um, I think the attraction was instant. And I, uh, mum says she was wasn't sure, but I think it, it was probably mutual because they had a very um, at times very difficult relationship. It was a very passionate relationship. So I certainly think that there was. Um, mutual and instant attraction to one another. They started courting? They started dating in the 50s? Um, yes. 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 And also they, um, they, uh, and they both went to teacher's college. I think at the same time they changed career and they lived in um, a caravan out near Ardmore where the teacher's college was. So they were quite, um, I, I mean, for those conservative days, they were, um, they were liberals living together before they were married, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, I've got lots of nude photos of mum at home, which dad took. Um, so they were um, liberal and very open-minded for the, for their time. I mean, would you call them hippies? No, I wouldn't call them hippies. What would I call them? A little bit more, mm, I was going to say avant-garde, but that's a little bit pretentious. <laughs> uh, no, they definitely weren't hippies because um, they were... Um, you know, uh, yeah, no, no. The, the crowd they mixed with was um, other Maori academic, other Maori and Pakeha academics. Yep. Yeah, that was more the kind of set. I mean, so it didn't freak you out that you now have in your possession nude photos of your mum? No, I think they're beautiful. They're, they're um, gorgeous photos, and I mean, Dad was obviously absolutely besotted um, with mum and in love with the way that she looked. So I think it's a, a total tribute to mum. Um, we used to have the photos hanging around the wall at home, which, <laughs> which <laughs> dad, he... which dad, um, and he, mum felt very uncomfortable about. But dad always swore, well, nobody can tell tell that they're you, but people would come in and immediately say, "Is that you, Arapeta?" So, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it was it was an absolute tribute to her. In the fifties, taking um, your your father. To, to meet the, the rest of the whānau. Yes. How did that go down, their relationship with, with your mum's iwi in particular? Well, they, they, so they, um, they drove to Rangitukia from Auckland, which uh, is on the, for those of you who don't know, is on the east coast near um, Tikitiki, and in those days was a big dirt road around the east coast, so long drive in um, a, a Volkswagen combi van, and they turned up... At the house, and unknown to Dad, um, Mum hadn't explained to her parents why they were there. So he said, you know, they were sitting around having a cup of tea and Dad's kind of waiting for something to happen. And um, so he launches into an ode to to Mum about why she's such a wonderful woman and all her qualities and the fact that he's come to ask for her hand in marriage. And what he says then happens is there was a long silence and my grandfather turned around to him and said, um, and who are you? And one of the things he says is that, you know, they said, but you're not Māori. And he said, well, I can't, 
I can't help my genes, you know, this is who I am. So mm, an interesting story. And from what you were telling me, no doubt that your mum's whanau obviously, you know, warmed to your father over time and accepted him. Yes, absolutely. They did warm to him, um, yeah, initially. I mean, there were problems in the relationship later, and I'd say for a whole host of reasons. But, yeah, he was welcome to be part of the family and uh, welcome to uh, marry mum. So I suppose then, um, how long was it until they walked, until they got married? Now, I... Look, I I'm not sure. I think they courted or and lived together for what, two or three years before they were married. Mum was married when she was 28, which back in those days was considered quite old. And quite she, old, yeah. And she said, you know, most of my friends were at home pregnant with children, having children. So, um, yeah, it was considered old and she was unusual in that regard and also to marry a foreigner. Mm. And so your parents, we're not. how many siblings do you have? Okay, I have one sister, Marino, and she's a year older than me. Yep. Yep. And I, with your mum being Māori and your father being um, Swiss? Yes. The combining, in a sense, of the cultures, were there any difficulties or your mum spent some time in your father's homeland? Um, mum, yeah, mum spent time in Switzerland, loved it. And, um, you know, back in those days in... in in the 60s, Switzerland was very white. It's very different now because um, it's more multicultural, but was very Swiss and very white, and I think she um, stood out when she was there and was considered exotic. So she um, she loved being in Switzerland. Um, I think mum and dad had um, a very difficult and feisty relationship because I can't, you know, Māori culture and Swiss culture are so completely different. Mm, in what ways do you think, Anton? Um, in the way that um, in social behaviour, um, Swiss people are very private. Um, they're very punctual. Um, they're very ordered. Um, so, you know, the times I've spent in Switzerland, um, you know, to see my aunties, it's always sort of by appointment. You arrange a time. You go and see them, you have dinner, and um, you leave. Uh, you know, which is opposite to the way that we behave. Mum yeah. would always, mum would always want a house full of people. Dad is completely opposite. He wanted his privacy, and um, was very selective about who could come into to the home, and that caused um, huge, huge conflict. Yeah, I mm. would imagine it does because we're all about people and Absolutely. having a kai and fun. No, Absolutely, and, and mum, mum was one of um, twelve siblings, so she wasn't used to that. And for the whole. For, for all of their marriage, which is uh, 44 years, um, those kind of issues were um, huge and problematic. I, I, um, did your mum um, lean on her, your un- uncles and aunties, for, for support during those times? She did, and I think, um, and I think largely um, to cope, she uh, lived a lot of her whānau life outside the home. That was the way that she coped. Um, and so that dad could have his privacy. But, I mean, she also needed her life, so that was the um, compromise. So, like I said, um, very difficult um, relationship, but they were very, very um, hugely in love until until mum passed away. Mm. Mm. When did when did your mum pass away? Anton? So she passed away about eight years ago, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, still, I mean, dad was the person that she spent her last moments with, and... Um, yeah, hugely attracted and passionate about one another. 
Kia ora, Anton Blanc, no Ngāti Parau. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Mariah Rakaku and this is Te Ahikā. Head to our webpage radionewzealand.co.nz forward slash Te Ahikā and you can see photographs from this week's episode of How Māori Find Love. In tackling the subject of How Māori Find Love, Justine spoke to Julie and Mike Dwyer, a couple who are active in the Wellington Kaumatua group, Te Ropu Tahiwi. Mike is Pākehā but was schooled at Teote Māori Boys College. At the time, his grandfather was the headmaster, so he grew up Pākehā in a heavily Māori world. Julie Dwyer left home in a Portuguese at the age of 12 to attend Hukarere Girls School in Napier. As she was in the midst of puberty, well, that's when she started noticing the opposite sex. Here's their story. And then we'd see the older girls going off, and then we'd go off to the show in Hastings, which was a big deal, and we'd see the big girls and the boys from TA, and they'd all pair off and go and sit under the trees. Te Aote College. Things like that, yes, Te Aote College. That's where my husband's from. He's a Te Aote boy. And... Um, we, you know, we thought, ooh, you know, that's nice. And we'd come away and the third formers would say, I'm going to have a boyfriend from Te Aote. And another would say, no, 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 St. Stephen's is the best. And so we'd be comparing all the local, you know, um, boys' boarding boys schools boys, yep. where we had brothers and cousins and all sorts of relations. So from there and, and leaving Hook and then going into dental nursing, um, the the feelings then were becoming much more um, much more serious in in your own thoughts because lots of girls once we got there had very serious boyfriends who had cars and things like that and they were going to get married when they graduated and I thought Hickama I haven't got a boyfriend yet and then um, dental nursing in Wellington took on a whole new um, aspect on the, this term looking for love um, because by then we were going off to all sorts of social functions um, to do with the church, to do with being a member of Ngāti Pōneke and being in um, an educational sort of situation where we mixed with people from warehouse, training college, teachers college and all sorts of places like that where you were really meeting nice young men, Māori, Pākehā, Chinese, you name it. We thought they were all lovely. A whole lot of us were going back to Hastings for a weekend because we had in our group Maisie Robin who was the model for Pamia of the Reef. She was at Hukarere with us. Right. And so Maisie had said to all the Māori girls in our draft, and there were five of us, come through to Hastings and stay at home with me. We're having a big hui. So, oh, yeah, that that sounds fine. So we were at the railway station, and Maisie's then boyfriend, Roly Habib, he was there. So there at the railway station was Roly Habib, who had come to say bye-bye to Maisie and see you after the holidays, and Bill Ormsby, um, who was also from Hastings and a mate of Maisie's, and this young Pākehā fella called Mike Dwyer. And they introduced us, and I sort of thought, oh, those are the bluest eyes I have ever seen. Coming from a whānau where brown eyes were it, we had very few blue eyes or green eyes at that stage. And I thought those blue eyes were just so nice. And being the young, sophisticated 
16 was I or 17? Just 18. Just 18. turned 18. Mm. Right. Very sophisticated 18-year-old that I was. <laughs> I took out of my bag a tin which contained 50 cigarettes. I offered him a cigarette and much to my horror, he had a bit of a grin and said, no, thank you. What did you think, Mike? Can I just... I thought I rather liked the look of her. <laughs> so we made some arrangements. Rolly actually rang up on my behalf, as boys do it in those days, and we set our first date. Yeah, Rolly we rang went up out and to a said, double feature. Yeah, Rowley rang up and he said to me, do you want to go to a go to the pictures, and I said, with you, you've got to be joking. He said, no, no, with my mate, Mike. And I said, oh, Mike Dwyer. And he said, yeah, he'd really like to take you to the movies. And I'm like, jumping around and saying, all right then, okay, which picture theatre? And I think he talked to you on the other end. Yes, indeed, we went to the Roxy and we saw On the Waterfront, Marlon Brando. <laughs> with that initial meeting out of the way, it was time to meet the Farno. And so the very first time, he said, yes, I'll come in the school holidays. I said, right, well, I'll go home and tell everybody you're coming. And how old were you both at that time? I was 22, 23, 24, about 24 by the time you asked me, and you were four years younger than me. Yeah. But anyway, I went home and I told my mum and them that, that I had a friend coming. And mum said, oh, Hitani. <laughs> and I said, yes, a friend. So she said, oh, okay, the pipe. And my nanny asked me a few questions, and she had a big grin on her face. And she said, Back in Apotiki? Yep, back in Apotiki at my nanny's home. Oh, Katapai, she said. And then I started getting cold feet, and I thought, Oh, we've got such a tiny little house. Um, somebody will have to give up their bedroom, and that somebody was my mum. Who oh, had must. to shift into sleep in the kitchen, and and what have you? And I thought, no, I couldn't bring him here. No, I can't. I can't possibly. He will take one look around the place and think, oh boy, what am I getting into? So I sent him a telegram, and I I said, we are all sick. Please don't come. When we were sitting down and just finishing off Kai and everything, there was a knock at the door, <laughs> and I said to Mum, I'll get that. So I went to the door, opened it up, and there was Mike, and I went, Ah, you're not supposed to be here, and shut the door. <laughs> it's what? absolutely true. Do you think I believe that telegram? <laughs> not for a moment. So, Mike, you actually got the telegram? Yes, I got the telegram. So, you, and so tell me... Um, well, we've been going together for a while. I knew she would, might be a bit nervous about me coming up. Yeah. So I just came anyway. So my nanny got hold of you. And she took you over to the table. Sat gave me you... down and gave me a test straight away. Ooh, a Out test. came a special little tahood bit of wild pigeon. And they watched me eat. I had to sit there and eat it, you see. We decided we would quietly get married. But... We'd go to a registry office and Mike said, Now, after school you're, you're in Napier. You go and make all the arrangements at the registry office and we'll go and get married when I finish school get off the bus, and the next day we'll go off and get married. And I said, yep, that'll suit me fine. Went up to Hukarere, because I was staying there. I had a room there, and I was going down to my dental clinic from there. And I made the mistake of mentioning to my headmistress that Mike and I were getting married. married. And she said, oh, and where are you getting married? And I said, we're getting married in the registry office in Napier. And she said, over my dead body. She said, I haven't bought you up in a 
boarding school for Christian girls for five years to marry in a registry office. You will get married in the chapel. And I said, yes, miss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay then. Yes, okay. (laughs) And so I, I did all the arrangements. All the arrangements. Let his family know. Let we got our minister and your uncle Terence um, was a minister of the church, and he gave me away because I wanted Canon Stevenson, who was our Hukarere Chapel chaplain, um, to to marry us. Or was it the other way around? Terence married us, and and Canon Stevenson, Stevenson gave, gave away. me away. And I hopped on the bus, thinking I was coming down. It was the eighteenth. School had broken up for the year. I was coming down to get married quietly to you in a registry office next to I had no idea what had happened in the last couple of weeks. So I arrived. she met me at the bus and dropped it all on me. I said to him, have you got a suit? And he said, I don't need a suit. I said, yes, you do. We're getting married in the Hukarere Chapel tomorrow. And he said, oh, I think we ran all around Napier that night to find a suit yep. for him to get married in. And we did. Yep. And he looked spunky, mm-hmm. really neat. And the all next the fun day. I turned up from Wellington and all over the place. I was absolutely amazed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Miss Hunter and Mrs. McGarry did the, the food. Yes. They, we had a lovely reception. My dental nurse friends came up. And it was it was a lovely better than a registry office. Oh, look That's here. Much in hindsight, I don't know how I had the cheek. And you, coming from, from a family that had a Shy, uncle. Shyness again, you yeah, see. Yeah, I think it was. Mm. About, yeah, but fuck a ma about getting mm. all that stuff done. But I, I just want to say that, that by that time, you know, we've known each other over three and a half years by the time we actually got... Mm. I think we had plans, which might be a bit naive looking back 50 years, but we wanted to stay together. We wanted to be together, and we wanted to build our life together and stay together. Oh, shucks. Last year, the couple celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. They planned to keep it low-key. But as with most special Māori occasions, it became a bit of a family affair. We pick up the story as Mike explains how his sister planned a quiet dinner. Well, all right, we'll do that. And she took us out to the Tinakori Bistro, and that's all we thought was going to happen. But when we walked in, a whole lot of the whanau were in there, and we had no idea they were going to be there. <laughs> Just like the registry office and look at it in church, you didn't know what was going on. We walked in and I, I, I was a bit nonplussed because the waitress hadn't come to tell, show us where to go and Nikki was just saying, keep going, keep going. And I said, but Nikki, we have to wait for the girl. She said, just keep going. So I was watching my step going down and I could hear this clapping. And I looked up and I thought, oh, that looks like George. And, and sort of, oh, my God. Goodness gracious me, it's the whanau here. And I just didn't know where to look or what to do. I think I grabbed your hand and you squeezed did. it so I, hard. I think there was a tear or two there. Yep, mm. I think we did have a tear mm. or two. So that was lovely that was because it was so wonderful. unexpected. unexpected. Yep. Mm. We got lovely gold flowers and we yep. got um, flat green me bobs. Yep, we got one of those. We've just got to set it up now. Mm. Even from the whānau, there's aroha and love there, and um, it, it's just wonderful. Ngā mihi kia Julie Rāua ko Mike Dwyer, who shared their story about how they got together and Aotearoa special, How Māori Find Love. You know, Mariah, how sometimes people say you can feel the love in a room? What do you mean, Justine? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. Been there. 
Well, for this couple, it's very true. When I left their place, she sent me off with a plastic bag of gala apples. Lovely. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Mariah Rakraku, and this is Te Ahika. Which brings us to the current century in this programme, all about how Māori peeps find... Love. You know, sometimes it's like a flashing neon sign. Burp, burp. And sometimes it's like finding that last liwai in a pot of puha and pork bones. This time we were Generation X and Y. Transition, please. Okay, so Generation X are those born between the mid-60s and the beginning of the 80s. Right. And Generation Y are those born since then. So I think we know which ones we are, eh, Justine? <laughs> Poor Y Kens is Generation X. She's Māori, single and a professional. Justine spoke to the sassy wahine about whether she plans to settle down anytime soon or if she's even bothered about it. I am single, yes. How long have you been single? A thousand years. <laughs> Since Rangi and Papa were together. <laughs> Since the great separation. I do remember Tani throwing a little bit of a stink. And I thought, mm, he's got a bit of something in him. Maybe one day. But here I am still single. And Rangi and Papa are parted. Is it a choice that you consciously make to be single? Hmm. No. Well, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows why yeah. it hasn't happened? Well, are you looking? Um, I'm looking for a zing. I'm looking for... That thing that makes your knees wobble. Um, you know, the V-shaped Māori men. You know, the ones with the big shoulders going down to the narrow waist. And then hopefully the intellect is of an equal measure to the whole shoulder-to-waist ratio. But, um, yeah, the preference is to go with the Māori man. That is definitely the preference. And why is that? Is it because you're Māori? One, because I'm Māori. Two, because as you get older you begin to realise how difficult it would be for someone else to, who's not of your culture to step in and start walking that walk with you. I mean, God knows, I'm not exactly like the raving talking or anything like that. But, you know, as you get older, you do want somebody who's able to come down to the marae with you, look after themselves at the back of the kota while you're up doing the chain gang and the farekai, or, you know, who you stand up and do a waiata and they might have your back, something like that. If you had to make a list for me in terms of what you would find in a suitable partner or a man, that would be number one? No, 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 no. Um, kind, number one. But then again, you don't know who you're going to fall for. I've been with Parkia men before, gone out with Parkia men. And, Why didn't that work? Ah, uh, well, my... my um. My dickhead radar wasn't quite honed in properly about that time in my life. Māori men, mm, they get a little intimidated. Māori men? Mm, yes, they do. Uh, if you have some kind of degree of success or intellect or you might be a little bit too onto it, a little bit too opinionated, they get a bit freaked out. And I've actually had them say and you're really successful and I'm not all that. And I was like, look, Larry, I didn't come into this because of your wallet. Yeah, That's so right. It's, so it's their own <laughs> hang-ups. Yeah, their own hang-ups. Frictions. Yeah. So, Pua, why you're Tauranga Moana? Oh, yes. What's your, your iwi? Uh, all three of them. All three? Yeah. Like Tirangi Ngāti, Rangi Nui, Ngāti Pūkinga. Have you ever tried to find love back home? I've accidentally... I wouldn't say love. When you find love, that's very rare. But you find... Um, Incidents, <laughs> encounters, because um, that's your common ground. You start from a common ground. Yeah, oh, you're from Tauranga. Ooh, yes, a little bit too related, but not too close to get a bit freaky. <laughs> not 
concert closer, our kids might have three eyes. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> yeah, no, you'd, it'd be nice to have someone from home. But again, because both my parents are from home, that's basically I'll have to shack, shack up with a cousin, which, you know, in the old days might have been cool, but <laughs> today it gets a bit freaky. But it's not to say. Who knows what could happen? Mm. So how do you, how does a busy woman like you, career woman, find love? I'm a social butterfly. I go out a lot, get far too, far too sozzled out, and then you just kind of get this terror that you're turning into that horrible viaduct cougar, which, by the way, isn't supposed to happen for another three years. <laughs> but just so we know. Um, yeah, no, done the online thing. Um, that's a bit freaky. The online stuff is a bit weird. Because you're looking again, you're hoping to find a mighty man, but then a lot of people on, online are cruising for a bit of casual ass, you know. And it's a bit, it, it can be a bit unsafe. And it's a bit unnerving as well. Because there's that shame. Again, it's, it's, it's kind of like shopping, online shopping. Sometimes you're just too busy to go down to the shop. You'd rather <laughs> sit on your ass. <laughs> it's true. Doing other stuff, multitasking. So, yeah, I don't know. Clubs, I'm getting a little bit too old for clubs. Um, and the whole New Zealand predilection for having a relationship start up after a shag, you know, an encounter in a club, then you've got a relationship, you know. A week later, you're going out. You are going out. Mm. I, was like, I thought this started out as a Friday night hookup at Harrington's, you know. <laughs> um, um, yes. Is it, do you feel pressure from your whanau, your your close friends to, you know, do they tease you about, oh, God, you're still single, bub? Uh, I want to say, they wouldn't tease. They always ask, how's your social life? Do you have a family yet? Because I am ticking on. 33 in Pākehā years, I'm afraid. 33 in Māori years is around about 54. I so feel, yeah. yeah yep. Your eggs should have cracked by now. <laughs> you should have some little chicks running around you. So really, yes, in Māori years, 33 sounds fine and dandy, but truly, you're on the shelf. Um, which I don't really care because I still look much better than most women my age. Oh, so good on you, girlfriend. <laughs> so, I mean, I get the attitude that, you know, hey, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, it's no big drama. That's, that's the thing. It's no big drama if it doesn't happen. Because uh, I would like to have children. And my, gran- my grandmother, my mother, gave my sister and I the hard word, okay, she's only got one moko. And believe me, for a Māori woman of her age, one moko is basically a makashin. <laughs> makes her feel as inadequate as a young Māori woman feels being single. <laughs> so there's a horrible chain effect happening here. But, um, yeah, she wants more mokos, and I'd, I'd like to give her some, but I'd like to give her some when it's the right time. Yep. I can do it on my own. God knows. You can. I you can. can do it on your own these days. Yeah, I was, a, I was a single, I was the child of a single mother. I've seen how it can be done. No sweat. I can do that. Mm. But, um, Preference is not to, you know, every kid wants to grow up with two parents. To me, you have such a carefree attitude about finding love. Would that be a fair assessment? Oh, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. I thought I did find one great love and we had hoped it was going to work out and it didn't. And um, there's that horrible thing when you think you found your soulmate and see, now I don't believe in soulmates. I'm not saying that, you know, they somebody don't. else, that they don't exist. I just think this. It's a little bit flaky. Poor Waikens or Nati Rangi Nui, Nati Rangi Me, Nati Pukenga, offering up her perspective on finding love. 
Kanui te mihi ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Julie and Mike Dwyer, Anton Blanc, Purwai and Leonie Kens. Amsteridi, Professor Dame Anne Salmond, the whānau of our media and Edwarda Sterling, and Sound Archives Nga Taonga Kōrero. Next week on Easter Sunday, we've got Haiki Nikina Māori, and we're with the kids at Ōtaki School. Hoki mai anō hei tērā wiki. Māori ora.